good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to George Soros. I should say welcome back uh, to one of our most distinguished alumni. Um, this evening, we, of course, are talking to an audience in the NSE, but this is also being uh, webcast um, around the world to we do not know how many people. But uh, it's nice to see so many people here this evening, particularly so many students here, though since it's exam time, I think I'm going to ask all of those who have exams tomorrow, if you wouldn't mind leaving, um, because whether this will help you with your exams, I think, is not quite so clear. Uh, one of the uh, interesting dimensions of the book we're going to talk about, The New Paradigm for Financial Markets, which you'll see outside um, afterwards at a very attractive price, um, is that there is quite a lot in it, in fact, about the LSE, uh, because uh, George Soros did uh, study here for some time. Uh, he studied uh, philosophy and also uh, some uh, economics here, uh, and indeed uh, there is one quote that I think is probably quite a good place to start, uh, which is page 92 for those of you who have the book already. Uh, when I studied at the London School of Economics in the 1950s, laissez-faire seemed to have been buried for good. Yet it came back in the 1980s under its influence, the financial authorities lost control of financial markets and the super bubble developed. So if only everybody had stuck with LSE socialism of the 1950s, uh, everything would be okay. Uh, but also uh, in this book, he talks uh, extensively about the influence of Karl Popper and his ideas of the open society, which of course are embedded in the name of your own foundation. Um, but particularly, you move from Popper into your analysis of the interaction between investor conceptions and what happens in markets and develop a theory of reflexivity um, which I think underlies your analysis of the long-term causes of this. We might come on a little bit later to talk about some of the, the more proximate causes of the crisis. But I wonder if we might start, George, by talking about that dimension of it and the, your intellectual formation here, if you like, and how that's translated now into this particular view of the way markets develop. Yeah. Uh, it is actually sort of quite poignant for me to come back here with the book because I started developing the theory which is in the book uh, right here at LSE where I was under the influence of Karl Popper who was talking about imperfect understanding and the, the inability to, uh, to base your actions on knowledge and in connection with the concept of open society. And at the same time I was studying economics, uh, the theory of perfect competition, uh, one of the uh, assumptions is perfect knowledge. So the, the, there was something wrong there. And that is actually was, and I was not particularly good in math. So I wasn't very good in developing the, uh, the, the um, you know, uh, making some great new contribution to economic theory. So I had to question the assumptions of economic theory and particularly the concept of perfect knowledge, which economists have had a very hard time defending. They have to abandon it, and, uh, and um, uh, they had only perfect information, and 
uh, the the rest was taken care of by uh, uh, the the uh, sort of a methodological convention that that uh, uh, economics is only concerned with with the relationship between supply and demand and is not concerned with either uh, conditions of supply or the conditions of demand, only the relationship between them. And that avoided this issue. And then later on, you had the, the uh, rational expectations, which was really a, a, a really far-fetched kind of attempt to maintain this idea that that people act rationally in, in the sense that they base their, knowledge, their decisions on knowledge. And in fact, that is not the case. And there is a, it, uh, so this is what led me to the theory of reflexivity, uh, which maintains that uh, social affairs, human affairs, have a very different structure from natural phenomena. Natural phenomena occur in one set of facts following another. Human thinking only comes into it in trying to understand it. That's a, a cognitive function. And as long as you do that on its own, you can actually go a long way because the facts then provide you with an independent criterion by which you can judge whether you are right or wrong. And that's how natural science has achieved what it has achieved. But in, when it comes to human affairs, there is another function. The participants not only try to understand, but they also try to influence the, the course of events. They want to make an impact. They want to improve their position. And that, I call that the participating function, or more recently, the manipulative function. And the two functions, the cognitive function and the manipulative function, they work in opposite direction, and they interfere with each other. And as a result, you, you can't have knowledge, you can't base your actions on knowledge, and your actions have unintended consequences. So how does this explain, how does this turn into an explanation of the way in which this particular financial crisis, whose detail will come on to in a moment. How does that explain, in your mind, how this crisis evolved? Well, you see, then in, in the, the prevailing paradigm on financial markets holds that markets tend towards equilibrium. And this leads me to argue that that paradigm actually is false. That, that uh, uh, the prevailing paradigm then says uh, that uh, the uh, deviations from that equilibrium occur in a random manner, that they, the, the, the events have a, a bell-shaped curve of distribution. Uh, and uh, so the, the deviations are random. And all the various instruments that have recently been invented with this alphabet of CDOs and CSOs and uh, all these things have been built on that assumption. And actually, the, practically, it is, it's really an observable phenomenon that the bear-shaped curve has a very thick tail, that the, the outlying events uh, occur more frequently than a random 
distribution would allow. Uh, and actually, interestingly, since uh, uh, this uh, uh, market fundamentalism has become so influential and markets have been liberalized, that thick tail has been getting thicker and thicker. In other words, the deviations have gotten bigger and, and, and more frequent. And that thick tail is, is explained by the fact that the deviations are not random, but there are ways in which false perceptions, misconceptions, biases can actually influence the fundamentals, reinforce a, a, a prevailing trend in reality, and reinforce the bias and set in motion a, an initially self-reinforcing but eventually self-defeating process, a boom-bust process. Or, and that's my theory of bubbles. And that theory of bubbles comes directly from this, the theory of reflexivity. So that's the, the explanation of this thick tail. And we have had a very, very thick tail recently with the practical seizing up of the financial markets. And that has happened because the, the, not only have these financial instruments been devised based on a false conception, but also trading techniques. There have been these black boxes that uh, have uh, followed supposedly market-neutral uh, strategies, and they turned out to be exposed yeah. to market fluctuations. And, 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 and uh, banks have taken on extra leverage because they thought that their calculation of risk uh, yeah. was based on this kind of, this false paradigm. So that is the, why I'm proposing this new paradigm, which is based on reflexivity and which, which recognizes this additional element of uncertainty that characterizes uh, uh, the behavior yeah. of financial markets. Well, but Gordon Brown has spent the last 10 years telling us here that he's put an end to boom and bust, but that doesn't seem precisely to have been achieved yet. Um, but if, if I follow from that point, um, you, you argue that the reason or one of the background reasons why this kind of feedback loop or non-feedback loop almost generates these booms and busts is because of a, a widespread deregulation of markets, effectively. Yes. That, uh, that the authorities have disarmed to too great a degree. So what, what, what have the authorities precisely done wrong in your, in your view? What were the key elements of deregulation that you don't think should have occurred? Well, it, it, it is a historical process, and uh, I examine in the book how, how it evolved. Uh, in my opinion, I mean, I argue that in addition to the housing bubble that was the trigger that set off this financial crisis. There is also a, a, a super bubble, mm. which has been going on for 25 years or so, actually started in 1980, when Margaret Thatcher be, uh, became prime minister and Reagan became uh, president. And that's when market fundamentalism, the belief that market are, markets are best left to their own devices, uh, uh, really became the dominant uh, 
belief, dogma, ideology, and uh, based on that, you had a new phase of globalization of financial markets and liberalization of financial markets. Now, because this, this, uh, the idea is false, markets don't tend towards equilibrium, you've had a series of financial crises uh, uh, impacting particular as aspects of the financial system. The very first one was the international banking crisis when Mexico threatened to default on its debt. And, uh, and uh, uh, that uh, forced the authorities to save the system by herding the banks together and encouraging them to renew the loans and lending to the defaulting or, uh, borrowing countries enough money to pay the interest on the loans. And, and uh, in order to allow the banks to, to make up the hole that was in their balance sheets in holding these uh, uh, loans that were actually not good, uh, the, uh, the, the, the debtors could not pay those loans. They were allowed to, to find new ways of making money, and they were also encouraged, uh, or they found it advantageous to go off balance sheet, to package the, the loans and resell them to others so as to make more money. So they then actually recouped and set up reserves, and then about uh, eight years later, uh, uh, the Brady bonds, uh, uh, were introduced, which allowed the, the uh, debtor countries uh, to reduce their debt burden. And the, the banks then wrote off their losses, because by that time they had enough reserves. So that was the first time that liberalization uh, uh, was sort of the response to the uh, a crisis. In the past, I mean, the whole history of central banking and, and regulation is, is a series of crises. Each time you examine what went wrong and you somehow uh, uh, rejuggle the system, improve it, so that that particular uh, uh, defect doesn't uh, recur. Here, for the first time in 82, the, the response was just to liberalize. Yes. And then, eventually, the whole, uh, the whole structure of uh, regulations that basically froze the banking system, put it into a straitjacket after the uh, Great Depression, when the banks had defaulted, was dismantled. The Glass-Steagall Act was, was abandoned. The difference between investment ba banking and yep. deposit banking and so on. So w one regulation after another was abandoned. Well, coming closer to the present day, I mean, you're, you're very critical um, of both of Alan Greenspan's tenure at the Fed in this book, but also about Basel II. We'll come on to the Basel II in a second. But on uh, the Greenspan uh, argument, 
uh, Alan Greenspan was here just a few months ago in a similar exchange with me, and um, I pressed him on this point about the, his responsibility for the subprime crisis. And basically, I guess his argument was, well, central bankers uh, can't identify asset price bubbles uh, in advance. There's no point in trying to pretend that they can. All central banks can do is actually mop up afterwards. But anyway, the subprime crisis did allow a lot of people who weren't previously able to benefit from the benefits of home ownership to get into the market. And he was really quite sanguine, I'd say, about his stewardship of this. You uh, take a slightly different view. I, I, I certainly do. Because, <laughs> because if you only use your powers to bail out uh, the failing institutions, you introduce this well-known phenomenon of moral hazard. And, and that is what has been going on for the last 25 years. As a result, credit creation has been encouraged. And uh, these periodic crises were uh, managed to be dealt with without any serious fallout in the real world. And that reinforced both the credit creation and the misconception that markets correct themselves. It's an obvious misconception because it's always the authorities that bail out the markets when they have the crisis. But that encouraged ever more far-reaching uh, extension of credit. And that's how we arrived at the, not only the housing bubble, but the creation of this alphabet soup of, uh, of synthetic uh, instruments. So when the housing bubble, the subprime crisis hit, uh, Bernanke said, oh, this is a, you know, there's a problem there. It's maybe will cause $100 billion of losses, but the system can absorb it. Totally unprepared that the whole system, one thing after another, in very, very short order, came apart. Uh, markets that I didn't even know existed ceased to function. Uh, auction rated municipal bonds yeah. and so on. I only just discovered them too. <laughs> so so, so that, really, that really revealed that, that the whole construct, this really uh, powerful, uh, very substantial uh, financial structure has been built on, on, on false grounds. And that has now been manifested. And this, for the first time, the entire system has been engaged in this uh, crisis. And the, the, the authorities had considerable difficulty in actually even pro providing enough liquidity. It took about uh, well, eight, eight months or so, from August till April, May, to uh, actually uh, bring markets back to more or less uh, uh, where they are beginning to uh, function again. So that acute phase is now uh, behind us, but I think the fallout is uh, yet to be uh, felt. And that actually, I'm, I find myself very much at odds with the prevailing opinion because the, the opinion prevailing in the market is that the, the, this, is, this is a crisis like the previous ones. 
and uh, it's always a very good time to buy. And uh, actually, markets have been rallying mm. on, on, the, on that. And I think that's uh, actually uh, just a, a bear market rally, and based again on the still prevailing uh, uh, false conception uh, that uh, the authorities can handle all these crises. Yeah. And my argument is, but I may be wrong on this because this is just a hypothesis, that this time the ability of the authorities to, to uh, handle the crisis is constrained and they will not be able to avoid a recession. Yeah. Let, I'm going to open it out to the audience in a few minutes, but let me just pursue a couple of uh, those points, particularly the, what you said at the end, because you, you are quite uh, pessimistic and bearish in, in this book, and you say that this is a crisis that's like we haven't seen since the Depression, and yet, you know, around here, people are still getting up, having breakfast, going to work, even maybe studying, I don't know, um, and... Uh, it, the government is still forecasting a couple of percent growth, and even in the U.S. it's not actually yet in a recession. So is this the summer of 1939? Is this July 1914? You know, where, where are we? Well, I don't, I, I don't want to be that alarmist because, you know, I don't think that we are heading for necessarily for the Great Depression. I think the range of possibilities is very broad. Let's say... At one extreme, the optimistic extreme, is the prediction that uh, the economy is going to begin to pick up by the end of uh, uh, 08. I think that's unrealistic. Uh, the other extreme is that we are in a, in a situation similar to what Japan uh, got into when it had a real estate yes. uh, 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 bubble bursting and its banking system was weighed down with a lot of bad uh, debt. And that took them more than a decade, and in fact, they really never got out of it. They're still, uh, the Japanese economy is limping uh, because of that. So that's the other extreme. And uh, I think reality is somewhere between those two extremes. But certainly, the idea that, uh, the, the, that uh, the economy is going to recover uh, is, in my opinion, totally unrealistic. And I'll give you four reasons why I think that. One is, I'm talking now the U.S. economy, mm. because that's the one that I kind of pay more attention to. Uh, one is that the decline in housing prices is, uh, is still accelerating and is going to overshoot on the downside in the same way as it overshot on the upside. Uh, so the, the, we are not yet halfway in the decline in housing prices and and uh, we'll have at least uh, 12 more months of uh, increasing foreclosures and so on so that's number one secondly the consumer which has been relying on the double digit rise in houses for its big piggy bank and has withdrawn equity from its mortgages at a rate which actually exceeded the current account deficit. So it was about, it peaked around uh, uh, between eight and nine hundred uh, billion dollars in 06. Uh, that, of course, has disappeared. Uh, and uh, instead of that, uh, they, they are now facing declining 
housing prices, with mortgages where at least 15% of the regular mortgage holders will be underwater in their mortgages. And therefore, the they, they will, savings will have to increase, and the American consumer will cease to be the motor of the world economy that it has been for the last 25 years. So that's number, number two. Number three, the banking system is severely uh, impacted, although uh, its ability to raise capital is quite impressive. Mm. So uh, that modifies the, the but nevertheless, uh, willingness of, of banks to lend, to finance business, that's also going to impact yeah. uh, capital spending and, and, and so on. And fourth, and perhaps most importantly, you now have a situation where you have inflation, the threat of inflation and recession facing you at the same time. And, and that is partly because the dollar has ceased to be the unquestioned uh, uh, accepted reserve currency that it has been and which has allowed the, the American consumer to, be, to, to become the motor and it allowed the United States to consume more than 6% more than it produced. Yeah. And that has come to an end. So those are the four factors. Well, if I take those four factors which you were talking about, the US, as you, as you said, and just very briefly, uh, parochially for the UK, apply them here, well, house prices are falling. Uh, consumer spending has been very significantly sustained by equity release from our housing market, which is now likely to... Uh, stop. Um, we have uh, also uh, a banking system which is in need of capital and therefore pulling in its horns. Um, and uh, what was the uh, inflation? And inflation, inflation we've got right at the top of the range and likely to go above it. So we're heading for recession here. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. No, it, it has a different. Uh, the, house, the mortgage market has a different characteristic. Mm. So you won't have this sharp. Uh, and steep decline. Yes. I, I think it's going to be much more gradual and, and you've got a lot more equity in, people have a lot more equity in their houses than, than in America. Yes. So it, it, it's, and, the, and also you haven't had any overbuilding. Uh, construction has been pretty steady. So it's a, it's a different characteristic uh, thing. Mm. On the other hand, the financial sector is much more, weighs much more heavily in the UK economy than the financial sector does in the US economy. And that's a negative for the, for the, for, uh, for the yes. UK. So the net of this is quite pessimistic. And if we look at the rest of Europe, however, the Eurozone, how do you see that? Because if you, if you apply your screen of four factors, which I think is an interesting way of looking at it, you, you, know, you would produce very negative results for Spain. Mm -hmm. um, but you would produce relatively positive results for Germany because yes. they haven't had any house price inflation for the last decade, yes. in fact, real house price falls. <coughs> How is the Eurozone going to cope with that tension? I think there will be serious, serious tensions because uh, 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 while in the past there's been a tendency towards convergence, there is now a tendency towards divergence, uh, mm -hmm. as you say, Spain, Ireland. Uh, are going to react di differently uh, from Germany. 
And that will set up uh, uh, tensions. And then the other factor is that the ECB has an asymmetric directive. It, it, its job is to prevent inflation. It is not tasked with maintaining growth. And as a result, it is keeping interest rates uh, steady uh, and not reducing them. And that's another reason why I think the, well, that, and, but most importantly, the, the exchange rate, because the Fed, by lowering uh, uh, interest rates quite radically, has led to a decline in the value of the dollar. And, and that decline has effectively exported the recession from the U.S. to Europe. So, so actually, while the Eurozone is originally unaffected, basically, uh, is also going to be affected, probably less than the U.K. and less than the U.S., but I think it will also be affected. Well, my final question, and then I really will open it up, is it, how, where are you on this uh, decoupling argument, if you like? Because the, the optimists say, well, all right, the U.S. consumer may stop dragging the world along, which uh, uh, she's been doing for almost a, for a decade, um, but it won't be too bad because, after all, there is a growth dynamic in China and India, which is now so strong and so domestically oriented now that actually they will carry on at 10%, which will mitigate the effects of the U.S. recession, and there's no real reason why these two should be coupled together. How do you come out of that? Yeah, there is a very substantial difference between the developing world and the developed world, and that has positive aspects and negative aspects. So it may lead to avoiding a worldwide uh, output recession. On the other hand, is largely responsible for the inflationary pressures that make, it, make the problem bigger for the developing world, over the developed yes. world. Yes. So it's a double-edged sword. There is a, a, a difference, but there is no decoupling. We, we, we are Siamese twins uh, tied together. Okay, well, uh, there's a pessimistic outlook uh, for uh, most of you, except our Chinese students who are going back. Um, uh, now, uh, I'm going to take your questions now. There are microphones, and you need to use a microphone, particularly because there are people uh, overseas listening to this. Um, I'm going to take, I will allow questions from journalists as well, because uh, George Soros is not giving separate interviews uh, afterwards, so if there are any journalists who want to catch my eye, they can try and do so. Uh, but uh, who would like to kick off? Yes, I'll take the person in the second row up there. And um, if you could say who you are. Uh, my name is Mark Diamond. I've got a question regarding inflation in the Far East and Middle East. Um, so you raised their inflation between 8% and 16% in different countries. What kind of impact do you think that will have on the global economy? So the question is that interest rates are being held higher in the Far East and in the Middle East, and uh, in order, I mean, to deal with inflation, how will that affect your equation about the world economy? Well, uh, the, the Gulf states in particular have been under great political pressure from the United States not to abandon the dollar peg, and uh, they have actually succumbed to that uh, 
pressure, and that has created a very serious uh, inflationary problem uh, for those countries, and uh, uh, particularly with the uh, since they are largely depending on uh, expatriate, I mean, uh, foreign workers uh, working there who send their money home. Uh, it has it has created social tensions uh, as, as well, uh, and it it complicates the life of those of those countries. On the other hand, of course, they are raking in uh, the, do uh, the dollars at an incredible rate. Mm. Uh, so uh, they do have an inflationary problem, and they also have capacity problems in in. in um, uh, increasing their investments, which they are uh, trying to do. So it's a specific problem affecting them. I don't think it really plays that much of a role. It, it's part of the global picture, of course, yep. because that's why uh, they don't want, the, the Treasury doesn't want them to abandon the dollar, because that would lead to further weakness in the dollar. Who's next? Yeah, uh, down the second row here. Yeah. Um. If you could help with the mic, that would be helpful. <coughs> Ralph Land, um, you explained to us the origins of the instability from the Thatcher Reagan era and Deacon Paul. And what would you say are the immediate policy imperatives, one, to ameliorate the present situation, but more importantly, to prevent this recurrence of bubble after bubble after bubble? Uh, well, I think um, that. Um, we've, we've had deregulation and the regulators have actually failed to exercise uh, their duty um, and that has to change. However, I think you have to be careful not to go to the other extreme of extreme re-regulation because while markets are imperfect, uh, so are the regulators. I'm sorry to say it's with you. Uh, <laughs> you didn't used to be. Used to be. Used to be. I know you are perfect, but you are the exception. And regulators are also, also bureaucratic, and therefore they are, uh, let's say, slower in adjusting to changing circumstances. So, so you really want to use the market mechanism to the greatest possible extent. And you want to improve the quality of regulation rather than the, the, the overall uh, quantity of regulation. And the most important single change that needs to be, I think, uh, uh, has to be the lesson that has to be learned. And that is that it's not enough to regulate the money supply. You also have to regulate credit because credit conditions don't always correspond to the money supply. You have, markets tend towards e extremes of optimism, exuberance, and, and, and panic. And you therefore have to have uh, uh, minimum reserve requirements and, and margin requirements which are adjusted depending on market con conditions. You do have uh, those minimum reserve requirements, your Basel, uh, regulations, uh, but I think that they need to be made variable, and that is the way to 
prevent asset bubbles from uh, developing. Now, uh, uh, Greenspan is right in saying that that's very difficult uh, to know exactly when a bubble is a bubble and how do you interfere. Uh, It means that the task is much more difficult than, than currently recognized, and you can't escape that duty. And that means that uh, keeping the economy on even keel becomes an art rather than a science, and you're liable to make mistakes. So uh, the, the regulators have to accept this additional uh, responsibility of preventing asset bubbles from going too far. Not in, it's not enough to bail the system out when it collapses. You're very critical in the book about Basel II in particular, yes. which you say is irresponsible because yes. it uses the bank's own risk yes. models. You need Basel III before Basel II. Has Basel II only took 10 years, so yes. Basel III yes. And it's quick. not yet in fully in effect, right? No. Uh, but it's, it is uh, an aban- the abandonment of responsibility because the regulator said these, the risks that banks uh, undertake are too complicated for us to understand. However, they want to prosper, therefore, and they are very good at uh, uh, calculating risk, otherwise they wouldn't take these big risks. So we can leave it to them to decide what's the right degree. And obviously that's false, because they have taken these uh, these exceptionally large risks. In a false, based on a false, on false premises. So that has to change. Uh, yes, Chairman. Jeremy Grantham, Mr. Soros. I think there's one glimmer of optimism in your talk, and I'd like to attack it. <laughs> <laughs> you are a little friendly to UK real estate, I assume, especially your um, on our data, the UK housing market um, has only got more equity in it because it rose so much more than the US. And if you mark it down to the same multiple of family income as the trend line, it will have much more pain than the US and no more equity back to parity than the US. So would you like to comment? Yeah. Well, I am glad to see there's somebody more pessimistic than I am. <laughs> It's a great relief to hear you. Uh, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, the decline will be, gra- will be uh, gradual, and uh, if it were to accelerate to such a, rate, such a point that you really are in deep depression, then something will have to be done to sustain the value of, of housing. I mean, maybe interest rates will have to be reduced uh, eventually. And the unfortunate thing is that it's like a Greek tragedy because uh, right now the the Bank of England has to keep interest rates steady until you have a recession uh, when when interest rates can be lowered. But when you lower interest rates, of course, the burden of of the mortgages also goes down. So... 
Well, I don't want to turn this into a kind of Dutch auction in pessimism, so okay. let's have somebody cheerful. Uh, you've got a smile on your face over there. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, Mr. Introduction to your book, uh, my name is Irene Heller, I'm a business correspondent in Germany. Um, I'm intrigued by your concept of market fundamentalism. Um, is it possible that um, this, uh, this idea of getting back to the equilibrium serves as an alibi for self-interest? And is it possible that greed of the financial institutions brought us into these uh, troubles? Yes. yes, I think it's... One's enough. Yeah. <laughs> we have so many people. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that market fundamentalism is a very convenient belief for, for those, for the haves, because it, it, it justifies their having it. In other words, the, the, um, they prosper, that includes me, by the way, uh, among the haves. Uh, but I don't share this, this view on market fundamentalism. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, excuse for pursuing your self-interest uh, to the detriment of the common interest, because there's a theory which says that the common interest is best served by everybody pursuing their self-interest, right? So it's a very convenient belief and that is why it, is, it has such great uh, currency and, and that's why you find that it's generally uh, people uh, uh, with lots of money who are supporting uh, this and, and propagating this belief. Uh, so there is a, there is a connection. Uh, uh, I think there's someone, yes, right uh, near the back there, a man with his hand up. Yep. I can barely see you because of that light, but I think I spotted you. Good. I'm yeah. this is kind of next to Mark's question as well, but um, your talk has been based on the assumption that markets don't tend to be delivering. Um, what is your explanation for this? Why is it that markets do not tend towards equilibrium? I think this is from someone who is struggling to reconcile your views with what he's been yeah. taught. I tried, <laughs> I, 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 I tried to explain it. Uh, I tried to explain it in my very abstract uh, argument at the beginning. I tried to explain it in the book. I hope um, if you read the book, perhaps uh, it will become clear. <laughs> Uh, yeah, another one, just, just here, third row at the front there. Hi, I'm Stuart here at LSE. Your reflexivity argument is very, very interesting. I'd be very curious for your thoughts just within the finance sector on principal agent uh, pensions and how much you can trace the behavior of even banks or investment intermediaries to, to basically that sort of disconnect. What kind of so it's principal agent yes. tensions within the financial system and how far are they responsible for the phenomena you described? Yeah. No, uh, um, that's, a, that's another source of, um, of um, imperfection in the market. Um, it, it's not necessarily uh, the principal agent relationship that is at the at the basis of uh, um, 
reflexivity, uh, it's imperfect understanding that is at the basis. But there is a principal agent problem which also comes in. I didn't mention it. Uh, it would embellish the argument if you bring it in. Uh, you know, the, 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 the asymmetric incentives that agents have to represent or uh, the interests of the, of the institutions the, that uh, uh, has you win, uh, tails you don't lose. Uh, the the uh, rewards, the excessive rewards that, uh, uh, that uh, bank directors are have been collecting and so on. I think it's a legitimate issue. Uh, I'm not poo-pooing it, but that is not the argument that I was presenting. Uh, yeah, the woman there with a the white shirt, I've seen, yeah, on the back row. Back row. Right now, another one where we are together. This is very non-DC kind of way. Uh, <laughs> Now that uh, interest rates and economic growth uh, seem to be aligning somewhat, despite it being uh, in a somewhat neg negative context, uh, what do you, how, how do you view the changing conditions now for the UK potentially joining the uh, European single currency? Do you think it's now more likely that uh, the UK and Eurozone economies are uh, aligning somewhat? No, I think that, that uh, the UK would have even fewer tools at its disposal if it were a, 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 a part of the, uh, uh, of the euro, uh, because uh, uh, I think that uh, a, a decline in the value of, of uh, uh, sterling against the euro could, in, could encourage exports and discourage imports. and just as the financial sector looms so large in the, in the um, uh, UK economy, the export sector looms even larger. So, so actually, uh, a currency adjustment could be the way to, to adjust to the changing circumstances, to, for instance, to the decline in the, of the financial sector. You could, you could imp improve the export sector. Okay. Uh, yes, a man in a striped shirt, just there. Hi there, coming Connors. First of all, I'd like to compliment you on what I think is the most timely financial services book in the world. In fact, you go, go through data that's basically up until almost this month. It's incredibly impressive. It must have put you under a lot of pressure in terms of getting things impressed. You still have to buy the book. You don't get a free one. Perfectly fair, perfectly fair. But my question is along those lines. In your book, you refer to the fact that you don't seem to be very friendly or bullish towards the U.S. dollar. You also think the euro is relatively overvalued because there hasn't been many other places to put their money. With the world being primarily made up of global investors today, currency-wise, where do you think people should be placing their bets? Usually I, I, I answer that I know exactly where currencies are going, but I'm not at liberty to disclose it. That's my normal answer. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, eff effectively, uh, obviously the, do the dollar is under, under uh, pressure. Uh, 
uh, and it was the first to move, and it moved rather radically. Uh, the euro appreciated very substantially. When the Fed indicated that it doesn't want to lower interest rates below 2%, the dollar has kind of stabilized itself. So uh, uh, I think that you will have very significant fluctuations in exchange rates um, uh, in, in, the, in this uh, um, period. Uh, but usually when you think it's a one-way street, something is going to happen to, uh, to, to show you that that's not necessarily the, the case. So what I'm saying is that if you want to speculate in currencies, you have to be very nimble. Uh, man at the back there, back row. Thank you. Uh, James Lords from Standard Bank of London. Uh, you mentioned as one of the reasons as to why I'm particularly optimistic about the US economy being inflation. Um, obviously, part of the main reason for that is because of the direction that commodity prices have been taking in recent years. Um, clearly, with the price of oil reaching $130 a barrel a day, I think the, the, the 2016 futures contract actually reached $140 a barrel um, at precisely the wrong time when growth globally is slowing down. Um, this you know, commodity price inflation is a, is a tax on growth, essentially. Um, what, what is your opinion as to why um, commodity prices have continued to rise, but particularly oil, when global demand should be falling with the US and uh, Eurozone and the UK slowing down? And, and what is your outlook for commodity prices going forward? What is the, why are oil prices still so high and, and other commodity prices given that demand is softening in the U.S. and what's your outlook yeah. for commodity yeah. prices? A very, very interesting uh, uh, question and given it a lot of thought uh, because uh, it's, it's really uh, kind of quite disturbing the price of oil. And I would say that there are uh, four, four factors involved. Uh, one, the increasing difficulty and cost of uh, finding or and, ex and uh, extracting oil. It's, uh, you know, people talk about peak oil, but that's a misnomer for increasingly expensive oil. So that's number one. Uh, secondly, uh, because of the decline of the dollar, you now have a backward sloping supply curve. Uh, that is to say, the more the price goes up, the less incentive the oil-rich countries have to convert their oil reserves underground, which appreciates in value, into dollar reserves above ground that depreciates in value. So, as a, so you have a, a backward sloping uh, supply curve. There's also other factors involved. Uh, namely that many of the oil-rich countries are in the hands of uh, despots and, and, and uh, uh, who mismanage the economy. Like the UK? Not the UK. You're not so oil-rich. Um, uh, uh, but you take Iran or Venezuela and so on. So that's the backward sloping, uh, um, you know, it's easy to be a Bolivarian revolution, revolutionary uh, when you have uh, oil at over $100. Uh, 
So uh, uh, that's the second uh, factor. Uh, thirdly, the, the main areas of, of, uh, of demand growth are in China and in the oil-producing regions of uh, the Gulf and Russia. And in those countries, the price of oil is subsidized. And therefore, a rise in prices does not have any effect on the demand. Uh, so those, uh, in the U.S., yes. Uh, but in those countries, and that's where the real growth is, uh, the, the price does not influence uh, demand. And fourthly, there is a, a trend following speculation. And it is now having a major effect on the price of oil. And you see that in the rise of far-out uh, delivery. Uh, uh, the real big move has been not in the, in the cash price the, uh, of oil, but in the futures price several years out. And that does affect the cash price as well. It, it has an influence. So there is now a bubble aspect also. So those four factors are uh, 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 responsible for the rise of oil. And the, again, it's uh, this sort of Greek tragedy aspect of it, that yes, if you have a serious recession in the developed world, uh, uh, it means that demand does go down and the price will be affected. But first you have to have the recession for that to happen. And, uh, and the rise in the price of oil actually hastens the, the onset of the recession. So that's part of the, my argument why this crisis is different from the previous ones. I'm going to take one last question, I'm afraid, because we're running. Yes, just down here. Andrew, it's 16 years since you helped the UK escape from a rather stupid monetary policy and start adopting something sensible. And in those 16 years, the UK has not had a single part of negative growth. You've probably been alone in that in the world. Most countries have grown very dramatically over that period. I want to add a bit of optimism to this discussion. It does seem to me that the availability of credit is part and parcel of allowing the world to grow that way. which would not have done under other issues that we've seen historically. And to blame our present problems as being a bubble in credit is one thing, but to blame credit for the problem is quite something different in my view. What happened in 15 years? It's that um, uh, in 92, you, uh, on David Henry's interpretation, not everyone's, rescued us from uh, a European entanglement, the exchange rate mechanism, and since then we've actually had 64 quarters of consecutive growth, which has been fueled by credit expansion, uh, and yet you regard credit expansion as dangerous, but it actually uh, has fueled the economy. So this was a sort of uh, plea from the banking dimension, I think, of, uh, of right. a, a plea, a sort of support for credit expansion, which uh, has fueled growth. Well, uh, uh, look, credit expansion does fuel uh, growth. And if you look at the period since the end of the Second World War, uh, credit has been growing roughly one and a half times at, uh, faster than economic activity. 
so uh, yes, credit expansion does support uh, economic growth, and also it creates uh, it also supports wealth creation. And credit contraction has the opposite effect. But in the last 25 years, if you look at the curve. Uh, uh, comparing credit with economic activity, it now has a parabolic shape. And that parabolic shape is not one that can be sustained forever. That's a, a bubble. And it, bubbles do eventually come to an end. We are going to have to stop now, I'm afraid. Um, before we do, let me just say a couple of things very quickly. One is that there is another lecture on this subject in just half an hour's time by Andrew Sheng, who was the securities regulator in Hong Kong, talking about a complementary subject, really, about the financial crisis and its impact on East Asia, which we've only had time to touch on. Um, and so uh, that's in the new theatre, so that just gives you time to get out, buy a copy of the book, have a drink in the, in the bar, and get into there by 6.30. Uh, also, on the 6th of June, we will have Axel Weber, the president of the Bundesbank, here talking about financial market instability, uh, and you're welcome to come to that as well. Uh, but tonight, um, I must uh, very warmly thank George Soros for coming here to launch his book. Uh, you were here 50 years ago. We wondered what you were up to, but now, uh, now we know. Um, and it's been great that you should give, uh, give us some time. Um, I hope you'll allow us to get off so that George can get into position with his pen. Uh, but thank you very much for fascinating evening. <laughs>